there, listeners. Today we prepare for our inevitable robot overlords, and we ask the question, if we can't fight them, should we tax them instead? And really, what do we mean by tax? For that matter, what do we mean by robot? This is Tech Policy Grind, a podcast from the Internet Law and Policy Foundry. I'm your host, Emory Roan, and today I talked to Nicholas Guggenberger of the Yale Information Society Project about one proposal to deal with the apparently rapidly approaching wave of automation, taxing businesses that shift to a robotic workforce. Really, the issue is much more subtle than that, more so than I realized, at least, and I'm so glad to have gotten Nicholas on the show to break down exactly how much I didn't know. We also touch on some other ways technologies and government may be able to mitigate the upcoming robot jobocalypse, and Nicholas offers some sage advice for breaking into the tech law field, even when that means traveling to the other side of the world. I had an awesome time talking with Nicholas today, and I'm pretty sure you wonderful nerds out there will enjoy this too. If you do, or if you don't, I suppose, you can let us know on Twitter at Tech Policy Grind. Another big announcement, applications are still open for the next class of fellows at the Internet Law and Policy Foundry. I've had a few of you folks reach out already, but if you want to get involved with the Foundry, if you're an early career professional or a student, I hope we see your application. You can apply at ilpfoundry.us join, and applications will be open until April 30th. Again, that's ilpfoundry.us slash join. Applications are open until April 30th. Do it. Foundry fellows set the strategy and run the operations of the Foundry and do cool projects like this podcast. All right, announcements over. Let's get to the question at hand. Should we tax our robot overlords? So the last time this idea started making its way around the tech law and policy circles, I asked who I should talk to about the idea of sort of taxing businesses that implement automation as a way of dealing with the oncoming automation tidal wave that we are probably going to be dealing with sooner or later. Um, and almost immediately, like within minutes, a uh, friend of the show, resident fellow at uh, Yale Law School's Information Society Project and inaugural ILP Foundry fellow, Tiffany Lee, suggested we reach out to today's guest, Nicholas Guggenberger. Nicholas is a postdoc at Yale Information Society Project, an affiliate at the Berkman Klein Center for Internet and Society at Harvard University, and somehow also an assistant professor at the University of Munster in Germany. Nicholas, thank you so much for joining us today for having me. So I like to sort of softball this in here, uh, as I do whenever I have guests on um, that are experts in fields that I know essentially nothing about outside of the general headlines. Um, but this, uh, you know, I tried to probably do a rough explanation of the topic in the intro here. Um, but we're talking about the idea that, you know, if the robots are coming for our jobs, rather than fight the robots, maybe we should tax them. Um, you have certainly been more plugged into that space than I have. And I was wondering if you could give sort of a background on the issue to our listeners about sort of what we're talking about today. I am happy to. So a couple of years ago, this idea was floated by several people that we should start to tax robots. The rationale behind that being that um, robots will eventually take over um, many of our jobs. Um, alarming reports came out of uh, half of the jobs more or less being subject to at least potential automation. And the reaction of people thinking about tech policy was to say, well, we can't really, maybe we shouldn't prohibit the use of ro robots um, as a type of innovation, but what we should do, we should tax robots. 
And for that, they gave various reasons. Uh, they said, well, and it wasn't, if it wasn't just uh, anybody either, right? I mean, we're talking about some, you know, this was Bill Gates, I think, was one of the people that was suggesting this. We are this. talking about Bill Gates, especially, um, which is kind of yeah. funny because Bill Gates is one of the people who has certainly <laughs> benefited from um, automation. And it's not just been Bill Gates. It's been, um, it's been discussed in the European Parliament, which um, eventually did not adopt a recommendation to tax robots, but um, it made it into a legislative body. And there were numerous economists, there were a couple, um, a couple tax policy experts, uh, tax policy experts that, that at least found that an interest, an idea interesting enough to further discuss it. So indeed, yes, this is not like one fringe thing. Uh, famous people have suggested that it and legislative bodies um, have deliberated on it. Um, as far as I'm aware, um, South Korea has even implemented as a measure that is well, close to um, what's been suggested by Bill Gates or deliberated in the European Parliament, which is to uh, not directly tax robots, but to change the tax code in a way um, that uh, makes it less favorable to enterprises to automate um, their, um, their businesses. Yeah, as I'm trying to sort of wrap my head around the issue, that was something I sort of came up against as well, that in a lot of time, or in several of these proposals, it's less sort of, oh, you have a robot, uh, this robot gets the robot tax. And it's more about, well, I think that the current tax system kind of incentivizes the replacement of meat sack organics with uh, robots, right? And we're trying to shift that or is that- It's absolutely correct. And I think it's very important to distinguish these two things because one, um, one aspect and the aspect that you that you alluded to is more or less to say um, through the current tax code, we are distorting the competition between human labor and automated labor, if you want. So um, we are incentivizing or subsidizing the automation to an extent that businesses might um, automate um, um, their business or replace human labor by robots, even where it is not economically efficient. They just do it because it's subsidized. So how can all right? Just, <laughs> uh, now our get, our listeners get to see just how clueless I am as soon as the economics of the issue gets brought in. But how, how could that? Can can you explain that a little more? I mean, if if it is not economically efficient to replace, how, how can it not be economically efficient for them to replace them, but they're still doing it because of the tax code? So let's assume I have a certain task to be performed, right? Um, I can either use, um, I can uh, either ask one of my employees to do that, or I can design and use a robot to do the same, uh, the very same task if that is technologically possible. Both has costs to it. Now, if the, if relying on human labor um, uh, has a certain price, and if relying on a robot has a certain price, um, it might be the case that relying on the robot is, if you compare it directly, more expensive. But through the incentives in the tax code, through the possibility to uh, take advantage um, of certain incentives for innovation, and at the same time, through the fact that I, for example, do not have to pay payroll taxes on whatever I spend on uh, on uh, buying and then and then using that robot, 
it might be cheaper to use that robot instead of the human after taxes. So it's not cheaper to use uh, to, uh, to automate before taxes, but it is cheaper to do that after taking into consideration um, the taxes that you have to pay as an enterprise. And that's what I mean by um, I think we should distinguish between um, uh, certain incentives in the present tax code that might distort the competition between human labor and, and robots to a certain extent, and the proposals um, that were put forward by people like Bill Gates, who wanted to go beyond that, who said it's not really about um, the nitty-gritty details of the tax code, it's more about that we have to go way beyond that, that we have to actively um, tax robots to um, either prevent automation to a certain degree or um, at least to slow it down. Oh, okay. So I, that was my misunderstanding. So Bill Gates was rather on the kind of the, um, the more... Uh, ex I don't want to say extreme. What is another word for extreme? Um, radical. Radical has a positive word. meaning. <laughs> radical can have a positive and negative connotation uh, to it. But also, but that said, I mean, uh, Bill Gates in the interviews that he gave on the subject matter didn't go that deep into the details um, mm. um, as to rule out that he might have also referred to correcting certain um, certain misguided incentives in the tax code right now. But the way I understood him is that he sees a, he sees a larger problem than the distorted competition. Right. I see. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm sort of connecting this in my mind because it's always going to be connected there, I think, by critics. But, you know, to the, the, the Luddites smashing the looms, you know, at the Industrial Revolution. And, I, you know, I guess what you're saying is that there are reactions and there are reactions, right? And there, there are, um, you know, we can try to shift the tax code to sort of try to... Um, provide like a safety net or protections or make sure that at least it's not overly incentivizing these Luddites losing their jobs to the looms. But on the other hand, there is some people that are just saying, well, you know, at the end of the day, um, the Luddites are going to lose their jobs <laughs> to these looms. And we need to make sure that there's an actual, um, you know, job securing element there, not just the antitrust or tax issues, right? I, I fully agree. And I think this, um, this is a brilliant segue into, into, one of the most important questions around that issue that hasn't been really discussed is the very reason why we engage in that discussion. And there are multiple reasons and multiple potential reasons, I should say, but uh, maybe just one of them is sort of convincing. There is um, one line of argumentation that suggests that we need to do that for fiscal reasons. Right. So the argument would mm -hmm. be, well, if human labor is replaced by robots to a large extent, then our tax uh, base is just eroded. And therefore, for fiscal reasons, we need to have a new source of income for the state, because otherwise the state doesn't have the means to fulfill um, to fulfill uh, whatever the state is meant meant to do. Um, Th that that reasoning I don't find fully convincing because uh, that doesn't necessarily suggest that we need to take uh, tax robots. We could simply tax capital instead, right? We could tax wealth. Mm -hmm. um, that doesn't uh, the 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 income of the state is not necessarily tied um, to uh, to labor um, as a source of taxation. 
Another reason um, that is brought forward or that is suggested is that we need to tax robots to fight inequality. And while I can see um, the appeal of that solution to fight inequality, I don't think that there is a direct reason, at least, um, to use or to solely rely on that measure. Um, and that is, again, because we have other means of taxation. We can tax capital, we can tax wealth, um, and redistribute capital and redistribute wealth. And that can um, help fight the extreme levels of inequality that we um, are seeing and that we will be seeing, which leads me to the third reason that's brought forward, which um, I find more convincing. Um, and that is, well, there might be something beyond um, labor as an income generating factor. And if we do so see something um, with labor that goes beyond just the generation of income, and that is taken away from people, well, that might be a reason to think about whether we need to preserve labor for uh, the, the availability of labor for everybody, um, if that has some hmm. sort of, you know, either social function or just important, uh, or is just an important element of people's lives, if that has a value beyond generating income. Wow, that's really interesting. So I had never actually thought of that before. So I guess the, the idea of preserving jobs for job's sake is the idea that the, the act of having a job beyond simply providing one's income provides other sort of less tangible benefits that are worth preserving, if nothing else, because we're, we don't know what will happen if we lose them? That's that's what I personally find the most um, the most convincing argument in favor huh. of a robot tax. I think if it's if it's just um, a fiscal thing or if it is just fighting inequality, um, then we oh, don't. Well, I, I know, right? Uh, of course, uh, this this just is meant in the literal sense of the word. That it's if that is the sole reason why we do it, and not to suggest that that is a small um, a, a small uh, challenge to tackle at all. But um, if it if this were the sole reason, I think we have plenty of other measures that uh, might have less. Um, wealth reducing impacts on the society in general than a, uh, than attacks on robots. And I mean, in this election season, um, we are seeing plenty of suggestions um, that are targeted um, towards uh, towards directly fighting inequality from higher marginal taxes on high incomes um, to uh, a net wealth tax to other other forms of redistribution. All right. So let's say, though, assuming that we are interested in some form of a robot tax or, you know, shifting the tax uh, incentives, in your mind, how could we go about that in the most sort of prudent uh, way possible? That, that's actually a very interesting question. I think it, it starts with... Um, us having to define what a robot actually is. Because if we want to tax robots, then we need to be clear about what we want to tax. So while, um, you know, in a, at first glance, it seems very obvious what a robot is, you know, that, that guy that we know from cartoons um, or that character that we know from cartoons that acts like uh, some sort of servant to humans, well, 
But that's certainly not what's replacing jobs. Jobs are replaced by robots that don't look like robots as we know them from cartoons. They can be software. It might be some. Uh, it might be some large server farm that uh, that runs some AI software, some AI algorithms on it. That could be the robot that we're talking about. Um, so um, I think a major challenge, if we were to go down that route, that is not to say that I think it's mm -hmm. the optimal route to pursue. But if we were interested, the first question we have to uh, uh, we have to clarify is what we actually mean by robots and. At least as far as I am aware, none of the proposals that um, have gained traction um, do a very good job or a very sophisticated job hmm. in, in, uh, in defining that. Um, I've got to say, I mean, I, I, I'd love to hear, do you think that that is a question that can have a satisfactory answer? I think a positive definition of what a robot is is very difficult. Um, I think um, what you can might be able to work with, and that's what's been suggested by a certain economist, is that to say uh, what we're taxing is the replacement of work. So um, the argument would go, we are not that concerned with what a robot actually is, but we would tax companies um, if they replace workers. Now. That in itself is anything but easy because like companies yeah. replace uh, replace workers all the time, right? And they create new jobs all the time. Um, so to figure out when a worker was actually replaced by something that we could define as a robot is in itself anything but easy, but maybe slightly easier um, because you have a comparison over time. You could say the company produced that uh, that much output with that many workers, and two years later they're producing the very same output, but with a lot fewer workers or a higher output with um, with fewer workers. So you have a comparison over time. Um, that might. What about for startups? You know, what what if you're a new company? Yes, that's one of the problems. Well, uh, being a new company in that in in that sense is nothing but a synonym of innovation, right? So um, <laughs> exactly, I didn't want to use the I word. <laughs> now, all of our bingo listeners can cross out the center square. <laughs> innovation has been used for today's episode of Tech Policy Grind. I hope that you got a bingo. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, well, that is um, that is um, and that is the what what I intended to, to allude to by using the I word is. Um, that the problem is not a problem that is only a problem to startups. It's a problem of this sort of these sorts of proposals across the um, across the entire economy. Because whether or not you're a startup, a change in how you do business has an effect on how productive you are. And a tax on robots to a certain extent is um, a tax on so that sort of change. And that is true whether you're a startup um, that uh, might increase its workforce, but by a factor of a 10 or uh, of 10 or 100 increases its output, but is also true for a large company that uh, might have a stable output, but um, is able to do uh, is able to um, generate that output output with lower uh, with fewer and fewer people. So I think the problem is the or the issue is the very same issue.
I'm trying to softball a way of uh, segueing this into sort of your other areas of expertise, because I know that you've also written about sort of algorithmic governance, um, smart contracts, the automation of law more generally. Um, and I'm wondering if there, if those sort of uh, other fields have any um, role to play, I guess, in this question of, you know, if perhaps taxing robots are not, is not the correct approach or is not the optimal approach, um, is there, you know, some solution or some recourse to be found in trying to maybe just improve the operations of government through other ways? You know, there there might be a parallel between this debate about um, about uh, robots and um, debates, uh, other debates that relate to fairness and technology in general. Um, and that is that um, whenever we focus on the technology, on the underlying technology that enables the change that's happening, um, I have the fear or I fear that we di divert attention from societal problems and focus on that very technology. And that is a point that's very similar that I tried to make in the in the beginning um, about uh, you know when I when I mentioned other ways to fight inequality or to generate income for the state. There are certain issues uh, that derive uh, from uh, technological change, um, but oftentimes those um, issues cannot be solved by um, focusing on the technology, but can only be changed if we uh, change our social structures. And in that sense, I think um, the discussion around um, the replacement of workers is very similar to um, discussions um, um, around algorithmic governance, but also on um, the automation of law in general, that yes, that te a certain technology brings change, but at the same time, the problems that we see are oftentimes not technological problems, cannot be fixed in a technological way or in a technology-specific way, but um, the technology only shows us underlying problems uh, with the structure of society and that we have to um, counter those um, those um, effects that we're seeing um, via structural or societal changes. That is maybe a parallel that I do see or an overarching theme between these different um, aspects or issues that I've been working on. So I guess we... Uh... I'd like to, before too long, sort of bring our conversation back around to the work you're doing um, at you know, the very, the multiple universities you are somehow all involved in uh, simultaneously. Um, but um, I also wanted to talk about the various interests that you're in, that you have rather, um, in um, algorithmic justice or algorithmic, um, sorry, governance. Um, and you've written about blockchain technology mm -hmm. and smart contracts, um, you know, especially, you know, I, I don't know how many listeners know that I, you know, certainly have a, a, a great interest in blockchain and smart contracts still even uh, despite feeling like the entire um, media and policy world has uh, decided that it's a terrible technology that is never going to do anything. Mm -hmm. But I, I was wondering what your what it's like sort of still working on blockchain and smart contracts and, you know, what, what that 
space is like right now, um, um, now that I guess some I, of the I, VC dollars are starting to dry up? <laughs> I guess my feelings are uh, very similar to your to yours. Um, I still think that there um, are many interesting possibilities. And I think the um, um, the I don't know how to call it, whether I want to call it crises or winter or what, uh, whatever you want to call that period, in large, uh, by and in large is due to an over, um, to, a, to the hype and the exaggeration that came before that. Um, so, you mm -hmm. know, all, all things are relative to a certain extent. And just as much as the hype during 2015, 16, and 17 was exaggerated. Um, it might be too early or exaggerated in a way to say this cannot be used for anything. Um, so I believe that there are certain use cases. Um, and those use cases are certainly not we're going to fix the world and democratize and create liberty <laughs> everywhere just by putting some um, some registry on the blockchain. Um, <laughs> um, but there are certain use cases where this can increase um, efficiency, where this can enable new ways of payment, and uh, where interesting research um, has occurred. So... I think to that extent, my uh, my view of the of this sector is rather close to yours. All right, so then let's start um, opining and, and talking about some of those ways, trying to bring it back to the um, the discussion that we had at the outset around automation and uh, responding to automation. You know, let's. What are some of the ideas that you have as far as how um, blockchain and you know smart contracts or you know, speeding speeding up or automating access to law could uh, help be help dealing with that? Well, um, I mean that goes back to the very origins of uh, smart contracts and uh, to the original, more or less original ideas of of blockchain technology, which was simply to create a means of exchange without a um, trusted third party. The classic vision of the uh, vend of the online version of the vending machine. Um, now, what, you, what the interesting aspect um, comes in when you're able to um, combine that with a um, high predictive capacity of what a the potentially right outcome in a certain in a certain legal case is. So I'm I'm definitely not one of the people who would ever suggest that um, in our lifetimes we could um, replace human reasoning by um, any sort of algorithmic reasoning entirely. But we what we can do and what will be possible is we will have a pretty accurate idea what is most likely correct. Now. If we do have a pretty good idea what's most likely correct in a certain situation, um, and if we have a technology that allows us to more or less automate payments, there might be some potential in uh, resolving, um, uh, resolving potential legal disputes with a rather high probability that they're resolved in the right way. I can't do air quotes on a, on a podcast, but just imagine <laughs> me doing air quotes now. Um, 
So, so this is where, where, I, where I really see the potential. Now, this, of course, in itself does not mean that we can get rid of courts or, just, uh, or judges in, in any meaningful way. It just means that in more cases than now, we are able to produce an outcome that is either more likely to be compliant with the law or more likely to be in line with what the underlying legal contract um, stipulates. Now, just to clarify, in and of itself, that doesn't necessarily mean that that is good for society. It's only good for society if we, at the same time, are able to protect consumers, to protect users mm -hmm. from overreaching enforcement of companies, corporations that try to um, that try via um, expansive terms of services to make us comply with things that we either are not aware of or that are in themselves um, not uh, compliant with the law. So I just want to clarify that I don't think that there is any autom um, automatism that leads us to more justice in the end. It is a potential that can be used in order to um, increase the general um, level of compliance, if you want. So as I am uh, pouring over your LinkedIn page, <laughs> as I do with all of our guests, of course, um, your description of your role as assistant professor in the University of Munster is a focus on IT law and especially blockchain mm -hmm. smart contracts and the automation of law. Um, I, I've got, I mean, I think that I, I've alluded to this or brought this up maybe two or three other times in the show already, but you are currently involved with not one, not two, but three different schools at the same time. So I, I'd love to sort of shift gears a little bit and talk about sort of professionally what, what that is like, how you are able to do that and, you know, how, um, you know, lessons you might have for some of our listeners, um, as far as whether you recommend that or, uh, I don't know, just wanted to, <laughs> wanted to leave the floor for you for this. Happy to, <laughs> happy to, um, I don't, I don't know how, how far you want, you want me to go back. So, um, I got my primary legal education, meaning a JD equivalent in, in Germany at the University of Freiburg. I afterwards got a PhD in law, which is a thing in Germany for our, for our, for our US listeners, um, um, uh, also from the University of Freiburg and uh, did a two-year clerkship there, clerked for a district court in Germany before um, going to the US to get a master's and LLM, which is a sort of legal degree in the US, mainly attended by foreigners with an interest in, in, in US law. So I did that um, at Stanford Law School, returned to Europe afterwards, worked for the European Parliament for two years in the area of financial markets uh, regulation and banking supervision. I then um, went back to Germany and uh, took up a role as an assistant professor at the University of Münster, where I focused on, um, where I started to focus on IT law again, I have to say, because my PhD was already um, on network neutrality, or I wrote a PhD, my PhD on network neutrality back when that was still cool and trendy and hip. 
Hey, it's a look. It's in 2019. Net neutrality is hip again. There's net neutrality bills popping up all over the it's place. It's back. It's back. It's hip. Now, well, now it's hipster. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you can officially say I was into it before it was cool. <laughs> okay, uh, um, that's going to be my new uh, my new line. Um, and then <laughs> um, uh, from there, um, I took up this uh, this postdoctoral fellowship here at at Yale. Kept my affiliation with uh, my German law school. And as of August of this year, I will become the executive director of the Information Society Project and give up my wow, job in Germany. So I'd like to ask you a couple of questions for our listeners as far as, you know, the a big portion of our show is, is advice for early crew professionals trying to get essentially how they can take your job in five or 10 years from now. Um, but the challenge of moving to another country or of trying to, uh, you know, create a position or establish yourself um, in another country, uh, and especially in an, you know, uh, tech law field, um, is certainly one that, you know, some of our listeners have had. So I guess first I'd like to talk about that sort of the, the challenges wrapped up in that, um, you know, jump across an ocean kind of move. Um, but then also, and maybe you can answer this however you'd like, but, you know, the work that you're doing at the University of Munster, the, you know, stuff that we've been talking about today, this is not just sort of tech law, this is frontier tech law. This is, you know, areas of the law where there is absolutely no established right answer. Um, and that in itself can be extremely exciting, but also intimidating and challenging, I think, for early, early career professionals to sort of navigate. So I'd love any advice you can have or sort of you know, nuggets of wisdom you might have from trying to develop a position and carve your, you know, your own reputation, your own career out in areas like blockchain and smart contract law and the automation of law, and also the challenges accompanying with sort of moving to the other side of the world. Happy to. So the, um, maybe to start off with the question of um, how, do you, how do you best move or transition to a different jurisdiction when you're trained in a field that's primarily designed to make you understand the legal system of one country. Um, I, think, I think the best way to go about that is to um, understand that not as a burden, but as um, as something that can help you, that can help you br bring to the table, uh, bring fresh thoughts to the table that um, other people who uh, were socialized in that very system you're transitioning into um, might not think about because they don't have that outside perspective. They might not have challenged um, something that's been established in the field for many years. They might just live with it and try to build on it, but they might not. They might not be as willing uh, to challenge the foundational assumptions. So. I would uh, I would try to see that as a chance and not only as a challenge. On top of that, um, I think especially in the area of um, technology regulation, tech law, if you want, um, you see an increased influence of jurisdictions out outside the United States on the law in the United States. I mean, take the GDPR, 
right? In a sense, the GDPR mm -hmm. has been incredibly successful. And I don't necessarily mean on substance. I mean, in terms of the PR it created for European law. I mean, if you if you had been uh, if you had attended a conference in the U.S. five years ago, there would have been very few people willing to talk about EU privacy regulation or EU regulation in general. Now, if you attend hmm. any any given tech law conference, there's going to be one paper on the GDPR. Um, so, hmm. I think this. Um, um, this effect that sometimes that's been that's been called by others the Brussels effect uh, doesn't only apply to uh, to to the relationship between Europe and the United States, but um, applies to effects that jurisdictions all over the world have on the American legal system simply by the fact of um, by the fa by the fact that the economies and especially the digital world has become so interconnected um, so I think there are two two things that you can that you can that you can really uh, really turn into to a chance and not only perceive as a challenge. Now I have to ask you about your second question. I kind of lost the thread there. <laughs> I think I might have lost the thread of asking it as well. Um, but I guess I was talking about the. You know, and I think that it, I think you actually kind of adequately answered it. And that is that, you know, when we're trying to carve out our own careers in these extremely developing spaces where, you know, the, the law is, right, the right, technology right, right. is so new, I, that I remember. there's no answer. <laughs> <laughs> so, so that was that. So um, it's somewhat related. Again, I think that is a chance, not uh, not only and maybe not at all a challenge. Why is that a chance? So, if you're writing something on 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 a technology that is still evolving, there's not much that you can do wrong. There are no, there are not too many mistakes <laughs> that people will blame you for afterwards. There's not that much literature that, you've go, that you have to go through to produce something that is of value. Now, let's look back at uh, you know, the early writings on the internet in the 1990s to about 2000 or so, when everybody was um, suggesting that um, the internet will in and of itself democratize the world and uh, free speech is no longer going to be a problem because free speech will become so ubiquitous. And, and if you look back at what, um, what's been written back then, 90% um, of it in hindsight was probably wrong. And yet, those people that wrote that back then, first of all, have made great careers. But second of all, I wouldn't necessarily blame them. They have tried to explain a new wave, a new development, new technologies at a time when they were not able to foresee um, all the developments. Right? They they might. Hmm. It's totally totally legitimate to miss 
certain potential threats or dangers simply because your horizon is limited while this um, while while the while the technology is still evolving so I, I don't think that it is that uh, that uh, that it is a reason not to write or not to research this area simply because it is new again I think it is more of a chance than a challenge. I think that that's probably about the time that we have for today's show. So I want to thank Nicholas for joining us. Uh, we've got one more question that uh, we have to ask each of our guests before they leave. And it's a, a recurring question we ask everyone that we can. Um, and that is, Nicholas, is, is there any book that you're reading, anything on your bedside table that uh, is keeping you up at night? So uh, recently I have read um, uh, Surveillance Capitalism by Shoshana Zuboff, which I can recommend to everyone. And uh, presently um, I am reading Zakt um, by Roger McNamee. <laughs> However, I have not gotten far enough as to tell you what's in the book. I will read it tonight, tomorrow, and maybe a couple days after. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll have to have you back on for an update. Nicholas, thank you so much for joining us. This has been a great conversation. Thank you. I appreciate it. This has been an episode of Tech Policy Grind, a podcast from the Internet Law and Policy Foundry. We're a collection of early career professionals paving the way in the tech policy world, and we really hope you enjoyed the show. If you like what you just heard, it would be a huge help and mean a lot to us if you could head over to iTunes and leave a rating and a review. If you don't have iTunes, maybe just share the show with a friend. We want to thank Ali Sternberg for producing the intro and outro music for the show, and thank you all for listening. So, until next time, thanks.